This is one of the few times when I do not think it would be fun to be on the Federal Reserve, to be a member of the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee. And so rather envying them, you know, I feel very sorry for them. You're listening to Lives at Speak, a podcast highlighting the remarkable work of Sidwell Friends School alumni. I'm Brian Garman, head of school at Sidwell Friends, a pre-K to 12th grade independent Quaker school located in Washington, D.C. In this interview, I chat with Jay Bradford DeLong, class of 1978. A highly regarded author, public servant, and scholar, Brad is currently a professor of economics at the University of California, Berkeley. Brad also writes a widely read economics blog called Brad DeLong's Grasping Reality. Previously, he was Deputy Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Treasury during the Clinton administration. In this episode, we explored ideas in his new book, Slouching Toward Utopia, an economic history of the 20th century. We discussed technological innovation, the unintended outcomes of development, historical hypotheticals, and the economic lessons learned from the long 20th century. Well, welcome. I'm here with uh, Brad DeLong, the author of Slouching Towards Utopia, an economic history of the 20th century. Uh, Brad is a scholar, professor, public servant, and uh, public intellectual, I would say, too. Congratulations on the publication of the book, Brad. Thank you very much. You know, it was a long slot, but it was a very worthwhile one. Yeah, and it's getting great reviews. Uh, folks is. are talking about it. Yeah, it's really congratulations. That's great to see. You. And it's also with a good press, Basic Books, which um, actually suggests that you might be able to sell more than the uh, 200 books that academics often sell. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, I think so far we're at... It's very hard to tell in real time, um, right. but if sales over the past three weeks have been what we think they, what I think they were before, we're now up to seventeen thousand books in all formats. Um, oh, congratulations! That's terrific. That's terrific. Mm-hmm. Let's let's if we could start out at the beginning, uh, at least as far as we're concerned. Tell us a little bit about how you ended up at Sidwell Friends and what your experience here was like. Well, you know, I, my parents decided to throw me into Sidwell Friends. Um. We were in Pasadena, California, and my father was working for a private law firm, O'Melvy and Indian Myers, and I was going to Pacific Oaks Nursery School and then Caltech Kindergarten, and he got totally sick of the private sector law and decided he wanted to work for the government, and then it was the Johnson administration and the Great Society. And so he got a job in the Department of Housing and Urban Development as a special assistant. And in the middle of the year, in the middle of my kindergarten year, we rolled up and moved off to Washington, D.C., staying in my grandfather's house in Arlington, Virginia, um, for a time, I guess our first six months, um, during which my mother forgot to enroll me in kindergarten at school. So... I got to skip the entire second half of kindergarten and be a free child for another final half year. And then come, you know, September um, of first grade, we moved into a house at 4700 Glenbrook Road in Washington, D.C. And, you know, the bus rolled up um, and I went on the big bus um, out to the Bethesda campus and went by the large imposing house and around to the side and into the little cinder block building and back and started first grade. And then I went all the way through um, for all 12 years. Were there uh, people at Sidwell Friends who left an impact on you? 
Um, Michael Frumkin um, in my class has been one of my kind of best friends, kind of since close to day one. Um, the class as a whole is fairly tight for a high school class in terms of how much we talk to each other one way or another. Um, we lost one of my best friends in India to Asia to brain cancer um, relatively early. Mm, yeah. And then my friend family. John Zeidman um, died shortly after his graduation of encephalitis in Beijing. Major teachers, right? That the ones who really stand out um, are Peter Cohen as seventh and eighth grade social studies teacher, our Joe Wildermuth as a high school English teacher. Um, and then the very impressive battery of math and science teachers whom the high school had. Um, of whom I think I'm most grateful to Florence Fascinelli because they let her take four of us and had run a second year calculus seminar for four of us in our senior year, rather than um, make us go off and do something else um, since we'd run our way through the normal math curriculum. And it turned out that was a great, great help to me um, in life to have had a second year of calculus in high school. And, you know, Sidwell was willing to pony up the resources to do it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And two wonderful families uh, mm -hmm. who are still connected to the school, the DeHages and the Zeidmans. Mm -hmm. uh, very lovely families. And uh, I did not know that you were connected to them um, through mm -hmm. friendship. So that's uh, glad to hear that. Uh, so from Sidwell Friends, you head off to Harvard where you do three degrees. Well, yeah, a, <laughs> a bachelor's degree, um, right. and then it was, you know, I graduated in June of 1982 when the unemployment rate was 11%, and so I took a look out and I said, this is not a job market I want to try to get a job in, I want to stay in school. Um, and so I went on and got a master's degree in economics and then a PhD in economics, and that then led to a lectureship at MIT, an assistant professorship at Boston University, an assistant professorship at Harvard, um, and then a full professorship at Berkeley. And the only time I ever ventured out was three years working for the Treasury Department, somewhere in the middle. So you could say I took a look at the job market in 1982 and decided never to leave, um, yeah. never to leave education. And yeah. here I am. Good choice. Who? How did you find your way to economics, and who were your uh, big influences? Who were your intellectual heroes uh, oh, in that field and know. others? I guess I would say Peter Cohen in seventh and eighth grade and making yeah. social studies extremely lively and, um, played a substantial role that I'd been much more of a math science person before then. Hmm. Um, but he made it all really sing. Um, who was it? Could it have been George Lang, who took a group of us down to the American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting down on Connecticut Avenue, where they had the um, the Club of Rome slash World Dynamics Global Economic Ecological Model um, up and running on a computer that printed out you know, graphs as little letters rather than lines on sheets of paper rolling through a typewriter. But you could set up various possibilities and then watch how the world economy and ecology evolved for two centuries afterwards. And that was very, very impressive um, in making me seem that, hmm, um, economics looks interesting and potentially useful.
You know, Michael Frumkin's father, Joseph Frumkin, was an economist working for the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. And he was an extremely, extremely interesting guy, um, very smart, very well-read, with lots of unusual insights, a lot of which came from economics. And when I could get past his thick accent and actually understand what he was saying, um, rather than just nodding approvingly and wondering, what did he just say, um, since the Russian accent was extremely strong with him, um, he seemed very, very wise. As a first-year student in at Harvard, you know, the guy next door was a fresh immigrant from Russia named Andrei Schleifer, and we were both taking math and wound up in economics together. And because I'd had two years of calculus at Sidwell, um, I basically had about the first third of the math class that we were then taking. So Andrei then decided I was much, much smarter than I in fact am. And he enthusiastically recommended him to all the economics professors he was meeting, of which the chief was his friend, Larry Summers. Um, and so they, too, have thought I'm smarter and better at economics and math than I, in fact, am. And that's been a significant help to me in my career. Um, you, worked, you worked with Larry Summers at Treasury, right? I did. I did. And we've written a bunch of papers together beforehand um, and right. since. Um, it's been great, great fun. And could you talk a little bit about your work at Treasury and what you were focused on during the Clinton administration? Oh, um, well, what we refocused on. Um, I want to say everything simply because back then um, Congress had put itself under a set of rules whereby nothing could be proposed unless it reduced the deficit which meant that everything that was proposed had to have a substantial tax component in it, which meant that Treasury had to work on it, which meant the Treasury Secretary basically decided whether it got out the door or not, because staff time was limited and he had people work only on things that he thought would be actually good policies with a high chance of congressional passage. And the group I was in, the Department of Economic Policy, we kept being thrown questions from the Treasury Secretary saying, is this actually a good idea for the country? Um, so we wound up doing not just Treasury business, but poking our nose into the business of every single other thing that uh, the government was doing because we had to come up very quickly with a recommendation to Treasury Secretary Benson of you know how good would this be for the country and thus how high up on the priority of things he should set the rest of the treasury staff to working on um, should it be you know major things were the 1993 deficit reduction package um were the north american free trade agreement you know say the assault weapons ban um worked on that spent a lot of time watching the federal reserve and trying to understand what it was doing and communicating it um to the rest of the administration, um, trying to keep Mexico from falling into a deeper depression after its 1994 financial crisis, in which I think we were very largely successful, um, and trying to spark a um, high investment, high productivity growth recovery, which you know we actually did. The late 1990s were the best time for America since the 
early post-World War II decades in terms of economic growth and real wage increases. You know, and we did a considerable part of that through our policies. I'm greatly aided by the fact that our policies happen to affect the economy just at the moment where an additional boost to investment in America triggered the dot-com boom and the coming of the internet. You know, that is, we happened to shift America toward investing in its future at exactly the right moment when the benefits to doing so were extremely high. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, looking at the Federal Reserve. A lot of people are looking at the Fed right now. Yeah. And uh, in many ways, economists have become our modern prophets, which I suppose says something about all of us. But I think uh, people who are listening to this podcast would be interested to know uh, what your predictions for the economy might be and what we ought to be doing right now. Well, you know, this is one of the few times when I do not think it would be fun to be on the Federal Reserve, to be a member of the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee. And so rather envying them, you know, I feel very sorry for them. Um, The fact is that market economies do not find a point of equipoise at which prices are relatively stable and employment is high. Um, They don't find this by themselves. You need to have a little bit of light-handed central planning in order to guide them to that point. Um, So far, I think Jay Powell has done a magnificent and a wonderful job. But, you know, there are dangers. Um, There's a Scylla there and there's a Charybdis there. Um, The Scylla, right, the Hydra monster with a lot of heads that'll eat your crew. Um, The Scylla is that the Federal Reserve raises interest rates too high and so pushes production and employment in construction and in exports down too far. Um, And as the people working in those industries react by cutting back on production and firing people and incomes drop, and we wind up back in where we were from 2010 to 2015, in a semi-depression with really no tools available in order to get the economy moving again, and a boost employment up to levels we think normal and get unemployment down to a level that is, you know, if not ideal, at least tolerable. Um, The Charybdis is the Federal Reserve does not raise interest rates by enough. And so we wind up with an inflationary spiral, um, which causes great discontent like the had we had in the 1970s. You know, up until February, I was pretty confident that the strait between Scylla and Charybdis was pretty wide and that Jay Powell wasn't going to have any problem um, guiding the economy through it. But, you know, come February, um, Vladimir Putin decides that the way to convince Ukrainians that they're just a um, regional Russian ethnicity rather than an independent nation, that the way to convince them of this is to send killer robots um, to kill them rather than to, say, send orchestras and ballet companies to tour Ukraine and if people reading poems of Pushkin in public squares. And one consequence of that is these enormous price shocks to grain and energy markets, so that you know, Europe looks like it's going to be very cold this winter, and Nigeria and Egypt may have famine. And that may have eliminated the room for Jay Powell to actually avoid a return to secular stagnation without without 
run without putting the economy into an inflationary spiral. He now d- may just have a choice of evils um, mm-hmm. rather than being able to avoid them. Mm-hmm. So we sit here uh, speaking with one another on election day. Uh, what what do you think about the impact of the midterms uh, in terms of the economy? What do you what are you looking for there? I can't tell, right? Um, I would say that do you know that Joe Biden has been an enormously effective president and has managed to do or to guide Congress to do something like six years worth of Congress's normal work in two, which is you know, a remarkable accomplishment given how you know bitter partisan divisions have become um, and how much Republicans still seem to be following the Newt Gingrich playbook that our job is to make the president of the other party appear a failure no matter what, and that's the most important thing we can do. Um, and so whatever happens in the next two years, you know, I think Biden can look back with great satisfaction on what he's managed to accomplish. Um, I expect that largely whatever happens, that there will be very little of the public business done over the next two years, that there'll be a lot of posturing and a lot of screeching. And that really is too bad because we do face extremely large challenges. And it is certainly true that a bunch of the things that Biden has gotten passed now need to be implemented, and that implementation will be a lot of work and could do a lot of good. But it would be nice to be able to move in response to the situation and also to continue tackling the tasks that we really need to be tackling. And what are those tasks, in your view, that are most important? Oh, um, I think the most important is global warming, that it's much, much cheaper to minimize it now and move extremely rapidly away from fossil fuels into kind of um, renewables and closed cycle fuels. Um, Much, much cheaper to do it now than to deal with the consequences come 50 or 75 years from now if we greatly exceed the kind of 3% um, rise in temperatures Fahrenheit that we've been aiming for and are now not going to meet. Um, that's extremely, extremely important, right? Um, you know, consider that it looks this year like the monsoon was 300 miles away from where it is supposed to be, which means that Pakistan drowns and, you know, the Yangtze River is 16 feet lower than it's supposed to be. And there are three and a half billion people um, who live in the six great river valleys of Asia plus the monsoon regions who need snowfall on the Tibetan plateau and the other high plateaus of Asia plus the monsoons to be in the right place at the right time in the right strength at the right temperature. And they do not have the wealth to kind of move to Vancouver and set up a dish and find new jobs in case the monsoon fails. Um, that I think that is challenge number one um, for humanity. Um, Nuclear proliferation, it looks like it may finally attaining critical mass, and I suppose that's humanity's challenge number two. Um, Plus, there's the big challenge um, that we've been facing every generation since 1870, 
You know, that every generation since 1870, we've had new technologies, new technologies so massively productive that they have upended the structure and organization of our economies and our societies. And on the one hand, this has created, you know, absolutely marvelous opportunities. You know, it's never been the case before in human history that a gener each generation has, you know, potentially the, the technological power to make it twice as well off in a material sense as the previous generation. Um, but with this opportunity comes great danger because, you know, what kind of social, political, and economic system do you construct that fits um, well with the new technologies? And even if you solve the problem of baking a sufficiently large economic pie so that everyone can have enough, there are still the problems of slicing and tasting the pie, you know, of distributing what we produce equitably, and then of utilizing it so that um, people live their lives wisely and well, as John Maynard Keynes said, that people feel safe and people feel safe and secure and live lives in which they're healthy and happy. Um, and I'd say since 1870, while we've done remarkable things at figuring out how to bake a much, much larger economic pie, the problems of distribution and utilization continue to pretty much flummox us utterly. So by taking us to 1870, you've brought us into the long 20th century, as you call it. Yes. Um, and it provides a great transition to the book. Uh, could we pause just for a minute on the title? Uh, slouching towards utopia, which seems to have so much to do, of course, with setting up your argument. Could you just walk us through that title a little bit and, and well, how it leads us to this notion that you, you pot? Yeah, go ahead, please. Well, you know, it was only a working title, a placeholding title that, you know, back in yeah. 1994, I guess it was, I read Eric Hobsbawm's um, history of the short 20th century from 1914 to 1991. And I thought that really isn't the big story, um, or rather, the story he's told is just one subpiece of the big story. You know, he's told part of the story of you know, solving the problem of baking a sufficiently large economic pie, but the, but having the problems of distribution and utilization utterly flummox us, um, and done so from a very narrow and ideological point of view. Someone should write a book that tells the big story, the whole story. Um, and so from 1994 to 1998, I kind of wandered around saying someone should write the book of the big story. And no one was doing so. In 1998, I thought maybe that should be me. So I wrote a draft chapter um, and began showing it around. Um, still not certain whether this was a project I want to undertake. And then eventually, um, Tim Sullivan of Basic Books came around and said, "You, someone should write this. You're not working on it seriously. Why don't we put you under contract so I can call and yell at you once a year about where the book is? And he did so, and the decade passed. And then eventually I set to work seriously, taking my lecture notes and other things in the draft chapters. But I still needed a title. Um and I picked slouching towards utopia at the start because um, when you don't know what to do, you steal. And if you steal well, you <laughs> steal from the best. And the best in this case is the Irish poet William Butler Yeats and his poem, The Second Coming, um, about how you know the 
social world in which humans are living, um, it seems like some great transformation is at hand, some enormous change, and everyone hopes you know, it will be the second coming. It will be a new Jerusalem descending from the sky to the accompaniment of a chorus of angels. But um, Yeats wrote in the last line of his poem, you know, what we find, what we find about to be born is not the Messiah, the Savior, the utopia, the paradise that we're expecting. Instead, what is going to be born is some rough beast that we do not understand. Um, and it is not, you know, the, the movement it is making towards Bethlehem, you know, is not a walk or a donkey ride or a run or a procession. Instead, it's a slouching towards Bethlehem. Joan Didion borrowed mm -hmm. Slouching Towards Bethlehem for the title of her book of essays about California in the 1960s. And, you right. know, so I picked Slouching Towards Utopia. And I, I could never think of a better title. Um, originally, it had a question mark at the end of it. Now it doesn't. Um, but, you know, um, and so I could never think of a better title. That's what I wound up with. Well, Yates and Didion are, are two good people to steal from. They are. They are. They are. Uh, and w one of the uh, lines, of course, from the Second Coming speaks about um, the center not holding, right? Mm -hmm. the, the center seems important in this grand narrative that you've written. Uh, mm -hmm. Not only you, – you have a very uh, wonderful way of uh, walking – down the middle and seeing the beauties and the complexities of that century. But there also seemed to be uh, a need for some, some shared ideology uh, for this economic miracle as you describe it to occur. Um, well, it, there needs to be a politics and a governance um, of, co of cooperation, of build-out, of taking advantage of opportunities, um, as opposed to the politics and governance of an, of an earlier age. You know, that is before 1870, you know, when technology is underdeveloped, when birth rates are high, when infant mortality is enormous, there's simply no possibility that humanity will be able to bake a sufficiently large economic pie for everyone to have enough. And so then the task of um, getting enough um, for you and for your family, well, you pretty much have to become part of some elite, which then has to run a kind of force and fraud, um, exploitation and domination con game on the rest of humanity, on the peasantry. You know, that's almost the invariable rule, except at very lucky places and times, you know, which means that the history that gets written down is the history of you know, the thugs with spears and their tame accountants, propagandists, and bureaucrats um, figuring out how to exploit and then justify their exploitation and use their resources to build some form of high culture kind of that suits themselves. Um, and that after 1870, that's no longer necessary. You know, we really have to figure out how to get away. Um, from that. And humanity has to figure out how to get away from that um, at a time when the underlying forces of production are being utterly transformed by newer and better technologies every single generation. 
so that a steam power economy is succeeded by an electricity and chemicals economy, is followed by a mass production economy, is followed by a distributed production mass consumption economy, is followed by a global value chain economy. And now here we are moving into the age of the info and the biotech economy. And each time, you know, whatever rough bargains and running sociological software code and whatever for society to hold together you've built up, um, it won't work because the technological underpinnings of the forces of production have changed so much. Um, plus, you have all the leftovers about how politics is about you know, exploitation and domination and we getting not just our share, but your share as well, um, that what you really need, what you really need is a focus on how rich and abundant and interconnected we are and what we owe each other so that you can figure out how to produce the sufficiently large economic pie and then distribute it equitably and utilize it kind of wisely. Um, and that's been a very, very hard thing for anyone to do. Um, and a politics of enemies, right? That our particular problems are because some other group is putting and keeping us down and we need to figure out how to get rid of them um, is probably not the right road to go down. Um, if only because, you know, um, our destructive powers are now so utterly great. Yeah, that Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels talked about how in things did not go well, it with it we'd wind up with the ruin of the contending classes. Um, and that was a danger they saw, and that's a danger we desperately need to avoid. Where do you see leadership in that regard right now? Um, well, I do flirt in the book with the idea that um, much of what is good in the second half of the long 20th century we owe to FDR. Yeah, mm -hmm. That there is somewhere else in the multiverse, you know, on some other branch of the universe's quantum wave function, you know, something that's out there, you know, but it, that's invisible to us, that in the same way that um, when you tune your radio to one particular station, you pick up only one station, but, you know, all the other stations are there. They're all broadcasting. Their waves are getting into the radio as well. But a properly tuned radio listens to only one. Um, so, you know, we're sitting here and we are, our consciousnesses are listening to only one particular small branch of the universe's entire wave function. And on some other branch, right, um, on some other branch, the Republicans did not nominate Herbert Hoover in 1928, but instead nominated some kind of old guard, non-progressive Republican. And they were unable to get over the hump. And the president was, from 1929 on, was Al Smith with, you know, Franklin Roosevelt as his vice president, who were totally incapable of handling the Great Depression. And then in 1932, the progressive Republican Herbert Hoover wins the presidency and tries to handle the situation, you know, which he would not have, that he was very set in his ways and set in his ideas about what he should do, an extremely stubborn man. The exact opposite of FDR is let's try everything. 
you know, we'll try everything and whatever seems to be working will reinforce. Um, and so you know, the political, economic, sociological order we got after World War II was the fruit of that empirical and progressive spirit of FDR that we're going to try everything and reinforce what works. You know, and it worked, and it worked quite well. Um, but had FDR not been there, um, well, every place else in the world but for, I think, Sweden and Norway, um, the Great Depression saw politics swing hard right. You know, um, authoritarians mm -hmm. interested mm -hmm. in more unequal income distributions and in focusing people's attention on their enemies outside their country. You know, or internal enemies, you know, ethnic minorities like Jews. And, you know, a, a world in which fascism is not ended in 1945, but then instead is dominant as a reaction to a Great Depression, which is the world we have without FDR, would I think by now be a much, much, much worse world than the one we happen to have. One of my favorite sentences from the book uh, is the shotgun marriage of Friedrich von Hayek and Karl Polanyi, breast, uh, blessed by John Maynard Keynes, yes, that helped yes. raise right, right, uh, a great sentence. Thank you, uh, right? thank you, thank right? you. And you, and you, then you write, but it failed its own sustainability test. It did, it did. You know, in the nineteen seventies, you know, people reacted against that, and. And you move to what we now call neoliberalism, right? To right. ideas much more connected with Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Um, that the country needed to be more unequal, you know, because that the job creators needed to be richer because so they'd be incentivized to do more work rather than spending their time um, engaging in tax evasion. And also that too many people were figuring out how to feather bed. Um, their way through society and were consuming more than they produced. Yeah, um, kind of at all levels, right? That Jimmy Carter was very interested in figuring out how can I open up trucking and airline comps to competition so that I can curb the power of the Teamsters Union and of the airline pilots union. Right. And then it kind of ascended from there um, to the idea that if you can't make it um, – yourself in the market, you don't deserve to be rich or happy or prosperous at all. You know, very much a return to, to Andrew Carnegie's, the law of competition is hard, but it is necessary for the progress of technology and the race. Mm -hmm. Except that, you know, in the neoliberal era, there seemed to be some kind of some people at least who thought that income inequality was not a bug, but a feature. Um, that it's good that people who haven't acquired a good work ethic, um, you know, know that they're poor um, and scorned. This all reminds me a bit of Hobbes Baum and the British Marxist yeah, who yeah. who spoke about right. That, so they speak about, especially E. P. Thompson, who spoke about the um, dissolution of the moral economy. Yeah, uh, yeah. What what's what's driving the morality, if you will, uh, of of the long twentieth century? The morality. Um, well, I suppose at one extreme, right? Um, there's the pessimism. The, yeah, I guess I would call it the pessimism um, of Friedrich von Hayek, um, who sees a world in which humanity has these wonderful technological possibilities, you know, but 
organization is an incredibly difficult problem. You know, you can't organize things through central planning because that turns, you know, everybody else into the effectiveness of a robot who's just supposed to do the will of the person at the top. And, you know, the, the person at the top is almost certainly going to have bad information and no clue about what is actually happening down on the ground and will issue orders to commands to the robots that will make absolutely no sense at all. That you can't have a prosperous society with central planning. Um, and the second alternative is bureaucracy, right? Um, but any bureaucratic rule book can only cover a third of the cases. And so a bureaucracy turns people into rule-following automatons, into software bots that go wrong a lot of the time elsewhere. Um, but, and I think this was von Hayek's genius insight, you know, that um, if you have a market economy, right, with private property, then simply people out at the periphery can actually do things. And provided market prices are aligned with social values, what they do will actually be what society needs to have done. Uh, that a properly functioning market economy with market prices consonant with social values is the most effective means possible for crowdsourcing humanity's collective intelligence um, to solve the problems that we set, that we wish solved. Um, and that's a genius insight. but. Um, Von Hayek then went on to say, that's all we can ask for. You know, the market economy will produce an unfair distribution of income because, you know, fairness means that in some sense you get your share or you get what you deserve. Um, but in a market economy, um, the only people who have social power are those who were lucky enough to have owned the right pieces of property or been in the right place at the right time. Um, you know, that in a market economy, the only rights it recognizes are property rights. Um, and the only social power is the power of the dollar and your ability to spend the dollar. And this will not be fair. But Hayek said, this is the best we can do. And if we try to do more, you will destroy the ability of the market to do what it can. So we should simply accept increasing prosperity, you know, and shut up elsewhere, otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, to no social. Accept, yeah, to accept that the market giveth, the market taketh away, blessed be the name of the market. Right? Um, so no, no concept of social justice. Forget about it. Yeah, you know, that the market has its view, but it's not one anyone likes at all, except for the rich. Um, yeah. You know, um, and you know, it was Karl Polanyi's insight that humans simply will not stand for that. Um, that humans will demand you know, that things be in some sense fair or at least fairer you know, or at least thought fair and will, in fact, if you cannot figure out a way to harness the market to social justice aims, there'll be an extraordinarily strong reaction against it as people will require that Polanyian rights, you know, to the incomes they deserve, to stability, to the natural and built environment that they think suits them, um, that they do not want the idea that those may all dissolve if the market economy decides those aren't in the interest of the rich getting richer. And this fight between um, how do we kind of get the benefits of crowdsourcing and of mobilizing human intelligence the market economy provides 
And yet also find a distribution and a set of a distribution of social power and material goods that people regard as tolerable, um, that doesn't provoke chaos, destruction, anarchy. Um, That's an extremely hard problem and one we have by and large been unable to solve, um, especially given that every generation the technology is new. And so whatever set of social, economic, political arrangements you'd arrived at a generation ago as some kind of rough compromise no longer really works. Yeah. Kind of right now. Yeah. You know, Milton Friedman would say, um, would actually push back on this. And Milton Friedman would say, yeah, but in many cases, the market's social justice, you know, of at least giving things to giving good things to the lucky and the enterprising. Uh, may well be better than what society thinks that social justice is. You know, because Milton Friedman is a guy who was fired from his job as a professor at the University of Wisconsin because the Wisconsin legislature thought the university economics department already had too many Jews. That often what the power structure of a society regards as socially just is not in fact anything we would regard as social justice at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's... You identify the New Deal as a kind of high watermark uh, in this moment, yeah, uh, yeah. and and saying that it it reshapes the world into this kind of social progressive. Uh, in which things view. go better for a generation than they ever have, and it it because of that, right? That vision is substituted for um, what you call a reactionary fascist mode, right? Mm-hmm. Are we entering? a reactionary fascist mode again. And well, and, yeah, go ahead. This please. is in our, this is in our hands as the story of the bird um, in the hands of the boy um, goes, right? That he asks, is the bird dead or alive? Thinking if you say alive, he can kill it. And if it's dead, <laughs> you, and if you say it's dead, then he can let it fly free. Um, and so the right answer to that is not, it's dead or it's alive, but instead, well, that is in your hands. Um, which is, um, that really is in our hands. You know, there are, Ezra Klein has this great worry that, you know, the shift to, the shift to a communications infrastructure of, of video and attention getting, um, is betraying us because it means that you gain attention and mind share only by first declaring these are my enemies, that that's how to get noticed. And that the right communications infrastructure we really need is a very different one, is one that allows for more thoughtful discussion um, and indeed compromise and empathy rather than assigning people Mm -hmm. to the role Mm -hmm. of enemies. That what we want is to say, gee, technology has given us all a very, very comfortable home indeed um, here. But we got to figure out whether our highest priority is to build an addition, um, which the people on the center left tend to say, or should we fix the holes in the roof, which the people on the center right have to say. Um, And if you do that, you can kind of get some conversation going and get some semi-consensus and some bargaining going and actually utilize humanity's collective intelligence, you know, for good um, and for progress. 
But if you start out by saying, these are my enemies, mm -hmm. um, things are likely to go rapidly downhill. We've certainly seen uh, a tremendous rise in anti-Semitism, uh, a, a tremendous rise in uh, the othering of people, of identifying people as enemies. Uh, yeah, um, it's a, yeah. It's, an, it's unsettling. It is very, very unsettling. Um, but we can see this in macro. Um, and we can see this, you know, um, in micro, you know. We can see this in micro um, as well. Um, like the way the people who have just you know, taken over as the executives of Twitter um, mm -hmm. have seemed to have promptly started by denouncing the blue, right, um, the blue check elite um, that mm -hmm. constitutes a Twitter mob. Mm -hmm. um, when you know, the blue check elite are people who have shown themselves willing to actually pay money for Twitter as opposed to everyone else who's simply been riding along it for free. Um, it's a very strange thing to do for some people to move into a house and promptly saying that those who are contributing money and resources to it are their enemies. Mm -hmm. And yet, do you know, David Sachs and Jason Calacanis and Elon Musk really do seem to have decided that the most right that the wind that the users of the service that they are now the company they are now control of that those who have shown themselves willing to pay for things this provides in the past um, are in fact their enemies and to be classified as such and to be dissed in various ways. Mm -hmm. And you know you can you do not have to be you do not have to be um, incredibly insightful to think you know, this really cannot go well. That what Twitter is supposed to be is it's supposed to be a corporation um, that runs a productive enterprise that finds customers and provides the customers with things that the customers want and manages to do so to produce them. Um, by finding workers who are willing to work and then producing the infrastructure and the kind of website dialogue that they value. And if you view the people who you're trying to enter into a win-win economic exchange bargain with, if you view those most likely to enter into that as your enemies, um, you're not going to get, um, you're not going to get anywhere. Um, you know, that, that's what they're doing. Every time, um, I have blocked David Sachs myself, but every time someone forwards to me a screenshot of, you know, venture capitalist David Sachs saying something like, I love how those blue chicks, checks who've been advocating greater censorship for years. You know, I very much went, um, simply because is that how anyone actually trying to fulfill an economic place in the world in which they provide services to customers looks at the people who come in, mm -hmm. who have bought from them in the past? No, it's a very strange and very weird um, situation um, that we're in. You know, Ezra Klein um, harks back to Marshall McLuhan and Neil Postman's warnings about how we do not understand the media landscape we are moving into and has great worries about this. And I must say, he's convincing me to share them. And something like this latest, this um, 
apparent self-destruction by Twitter's executive team of the loyalty of its primary customers um, has got to reinforce that. Yeah. Keynes figures lar- largely in your argument. And, and if I, I would like to come back to him for a minute and, and just read this quote um, and, and ask you a question about it. Uh, this sure. is uh, something that you include in your conclusion. And a quote from Keynes, we lack more than usual a coherent scheme of progress, a tangible ideal. All the political parties alike have their origins in the past ideas and not the new ideas. It is not necessary to debate the subtleties of what justifies a man in promoting his gospel by force, for no one has a gospel. The next move is with the head, and the fist must wait. Mm-hmm. So we need a new grand narrative, don't we? And uh, it, it, it's time for the second coming. It's time for something to succeed uh, the slouch uh, toward utopia. Mm-hmm. What is it? I would, oh, I would <laughs> give you the same answer that Keynes did, you know, yeah. um, that he really did not know. Um, he had ideas, right, which he then developed over the next 15 years. Um, but as I say, in the end, the move was not so much with the head as with, you know, experience, feedback, um, and then recalibration. Um, mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. was with Franklin Delano Roosevelt's declaration that what we need most is the, is bold experimentation. Mm-hmm. That it wasn't that someone thought very hard about what the new so- set of social and political and economic arrangements should be. It was that FDR said, let's try everything. And if you could get into his office with a half plausible story, you would in a week have an agency. Um but also reinforcing success and pruning apparent failure very, very quickly um, as well. And I would say that we do need now, we need a whole bunch of similar bold experimentation. It would be really nice if it took the collected form of a new deal. Um, But if it doesn't, we're going to have to look for examples of things working all over the place over the course of the next 10 years. You write, um, and and this is a a correction, I think, or an inclusion with von Hayek, you write, because often demand creates supply, governments must manage and manage Mm -hmm. competently at times with a heavy touch. Yes. FDR was willing to do that. In fact, FDR was so committed to making sure that his programs were sanctioned by the court that he was willing to pack it. Uh, what 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 advice would you give the Biden administration uh, in terms of dealing with the current crises that they face, whether it has to do with global warming or uh, with um, uh, the uh, state of the economy? I would actually want to give advice to John Roberts and several other members of the Supreme Court right now, mm-hmm. which is precisely that they go back um, and consider how the New Deal court in fact, mm-hmm. reacted to the coming of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, and indeed, during Roosevelt's first term, they were incredibly, incredibly obstructionist um, to mm-hmm. everything. You know, Charles Evans Hughes, as Chief Justice, being the centerpiece of a conservative majority that was striking things down willy-nilly, thinking Roosevelt um, – 
is here in Contrud, is here in the presidency, largely by accident, because Hoover was running during a Great Depression, and this is by and large basically a Republican country. While he's doing all of these semi-socialistic experiments, they don't accord with our reading of the Constitution. Um, we're going to strike them down. But then Roosevelt overwhelmingly wins re-election in 1936, and Chief Justice Hughes thinks, um, and thinks quite hard. And in the next two years, over the protests of his, you know, dead-ender brethren, um, switches his legal positions on a great many issues, um, basically saying that you know, the United States is in a Great Depression, um, action is needed, you know, I really could block it, um, you know, that I could require that Roosevelt go through the constitutional amendment process in mm -hmm. order to get permission to do all of these things he is trying to do. Um, but I do not think that would be at all wise, right? Um, that, you know, the Supreme Court is there to say what is constitutional, but a Supreme Court also has to reflect that the Constitution ought to be something that evolves over time. And that there is a defect in the U.S. Constitution in terms that has made itself much too hard to amend. Um, therefore, most of our amendments have been informal changes of doctrine rather than formal changes in black letter, and I'm going to recognize this. I think John Roberts would have been much wiser had he realized this 15 years ago um, and not gone hunting for reasons to declare Obamacare unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it is never too late to realize you've made a mistake and never too late to fail to be wise. What would a second Trump presidency present? What challenges would that present to uh, the the work of finding, uh, to use Keynes's uh, terminology, uh, the new idea to find the new the new grand narrative? Well, I mean, already no one thinks the United States has anything to teach um, anyone else in the world about how to run our political system, about how to run a political system, or indeed how to manage an economy. This is the end of what you describe as a kind yeah. of exceptionalism, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. That we're basically viewed as a near as an irrational chaos monkey now. It would be the very opposite of what George W. Bush call of George H. W. Bush was looking for when he called for a kinder, gentler America. Mm -hmm. um, it would be, let's say, um, Great Britain now. Um, Great Britain has now you know, lost most of the last fifteen years of potential economic growth. You know, that relative to benchmark countries, it's 15% poorer than it was relative to its benchmark countries back in 2007. And half of this is due to the fact that the austerity conservative governments of 2007 to 2015, um, that at a time when it was good and good and beneficial to invest heavily in Britain, um, instead, they were focusing all on cutting back, and half of it is due to the disaster of Brexit, which has greatly disturbed the trade links that Britain has had with the rest of the world, um, and has in fact removed itself from its previous position um, of being able to 
to bargain on equal basis with its natural trade partners. Um, and in fact, given every other country in Europe a significant advantage at intra-European trade. Um, I don't think Trump could do that much damage to the United States, but he would certainly try um, in terms of our ability to actually produce the things we need. Um, he certainly would do immense ideological damage to the, the country as, you know, um, I would say an immense to the de- to the patriotism um, of at least the right half of the electorate. Mm-hmm. Right. That his full point now is that the country right now is definitely the opposite of great, which is a very strange thing to say about a country that is still the desired destination of, you know, tens, if not hundreds of millions of people as something that would be a nice place for them to live. Our students, as I'm sure your students uh, are, they're worried about the state of the world. They're worried about injustice. They're worried about war. They're worried about a reemerging nuclear threat. They're worried about mm-hmm. climate change. They're worried about COVID and political polarization, violence, the list goes on. Mm-hmm. They're even worried about thriving in an economy that their parents once found promising for the most part. And they're worried about what their place will be in the new economy that we're seeing. What do you say to your students to give them hope? Well, this learn some coding. Learn some coding is certainly a good thing. Um, learn how to interface with and understand the technologies that are emerging has always been a wonderful thing to do um, in terms of making yourself useful for humanity during your career. And, you know, if you make yourself useful to humanity, then you'll be able to decide what form you want that utility to take and within reason what your standard of living and style of life um, will be. Otherwise, always be curious. That is that old routines, old practices, old jobs are going to change over the next 30 years. And so the broader and the more libo- more liberally you can be educated, you know, the better positioned you will be to actually be useful, you know, that you have a brain, which is an absolutely wonderful thing. And by now, after however many years at Sidwell, an enormous amount of society's you know, resources have gone into um, helping you be smart and think smart you know, for the benefit of humanity. Um, And so treasure that and try to make it a brain that can continue to learn new things and that can actually do the kind of try, look, assess, evaluate, feedback, and try again loop that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was so successful at establishing at the governmental level during the 1930s. I think uh, your scholarship and this conversation is a testament to what a liberal arts education can do. Um, And uh, I want to thank you for this book. Also, also, also go read the works of um, Sidwell alumnus Baratunde Thurston, if you have. (laughs) He's so absolutely hilarious on so many levels. Oh, he's wonderful. He was our commencement. joy. 
Yes. He was our commencement speaker last year. And, oh, excellent. Uh, he, okay. Yeah, he was really terrific. And All he's right. got this new show on PBS as well. Uh, just to say, I, I mean, I love, I want, I want to say too, just the remarkable balance in the book. Uh, and just two things I'd just like to read back to you, which uh, you'll recognize, of course. But one is for all of its uneven benefits, for all of its expanded human felicity without ever reaching its limit, for all its manifest imperfections, economics during the 20th century has worked just shy of miracles. Um, and, and in what, what sense, if you could just sum that up, what, what is the miracle in just, just a few lines? And then I want to come back and read another piece to you, but, but what are, what are the miracle miracles? I would say that the big miracle is that now less than 5% of humanity spends hours each day thinking about how hungry they are. And how great it would be for them to have just a few more calories right now. Um, While that was, well, 75% of humanity had many, many days in which they thought that back in 1870. Um, That, you know, the sheer scale of our wealth relative to all previous civilizations. um, That we really do live better than kings and queens of the past to an extraordinary degree. Um, And we should recognize that. Um, You know, we should recognize that. And we should be extremely grateful that we have the technological power so that um, whatever unhappiness we make is not the result of necessity in terms of nature not having the resources needed to support so many monkeys on the planet, but is instead our inability to act like human beings. Mm-hmm. Which which brings us actually to the other uh, passage that I wanted to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, some terrific writing, and I think um, very insightful into the uh, sense of balance that you bring uh, to the book. And you write, but material prosperity is unevenly distributed around the globe to a gross, even criminal extent. Mm-hmm. And material wealth does not make people happy in a world where politicians and others prosper mightily from finding new ways to keep people unhappy. Mm -hmm. The history of the long 20th century cannot be told as a triumphal gallop or a march or even a walk of progress along the road that brings us closer to a utopia. It is rather a slouch at best. Uh, they say the problem of baking a sufficiently large economic pie, we are rapidly solving that, at least so that everyone can have enough for reasonable definitions of enough. The problems of slicing and tasting, of distributing and utilizing it continue to flummox us. And what about the spiritual nature uh, of uh, of our lives and it, their, its relationship, our lives, our spiritual lives in, in terms of uh, the relation to the economy? What 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 are your insights there? I don't have a great deal, right? Um, that is, for this, I would refer you mostly to my old um, professor, Ben Friedman, who has a book on the moral consequences of economic growth, mm-hmm. um, and also a new one um, on kind of religion and the economy. Um, mm-hmm. I would say that when say that when people quote Adam Smith and talk about how the economy runs on self-interest, Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very, very, very expansive notion of self-interest because for Adam Smith, you know, you get your self-interest not by just by being 
well-fed and well-housed and well-clothed and well-amused. Um, your self-interest is also to be the kind of person you respect, right? Mm -hmm. To kind of have a little internal spectator in your mind that looks at yourself and says, yes, this is the kind of person I respect. Um, Mm -hmm. And you've got to figure out that that's that when Adam Smith says that it is not to the benevolence of the baker that we expect our bread, but to his self-interest. Um, a great deal of their self-interest is that he wants to be the kind of person who bakes good bread and has customers who are happy, rather mm -hmm. than the kind of person who adulterates the bread with chalk and cheats his customers as much as he can. Mm -hmm. And he's providing a service. Yeah. Right. That's yeah, the, that's yeah. it. Yeah. It's very much, uh, that, that description of, uh, early capitalism fits very much so with the uh, Quakers who were early capitalists and, uh, yeah. saw themselves, uh, providing a service and, and, yes. uh, tried to be the, be a person who was, yeah. uh, one to be respected. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's an excellent book by Paul Seabright called, I think, in the company of strangers, all about how all of our economy ultimately derives from this human propensity to form gift exchange relationships with others mm -hmm. in which we are their friends and in which we do favors for them and they do favors for us. And we both are enormously enriched thereby, but also we both feel like we are under some obligation to the other because we each feel the other has done more for us than we have done for them. Mm -hmm. And that that happy situation of being friends involved in these gift exchange relationships, you know, that really does characterize the human race. Mm -hmm. um, it there are huge numbers of people who have made all the things in my house, you know, who really are my friends. Um, and I should recognize that and be their friends in return. It sounds like we've come full circle with Polanyi Certainly. and, uh, yes. right. Uh, mm -hmm. and the embeddedness, embeddedness of, uh, relationships yeah. in the market yeah. or, yeah. or not. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Brad, thank you for giving us, uh, so much time today. Thank you for, uh, the book, which is really a treat to read. I highly recommend it and uh, I appreciate welcome. your insights and I, sure. I hope we can get you back to Sidwell friends yeah. uh, for a visit. Yeah. Yeah. I would like that. We'd love. I can tell you, we we've got we we've got some courses here now that we probably didn't have when you were here, and including an economics course. Yes. Uh, and uh, we'd love to have you speak to our students at some point. So if you're mm -hmm. uh, open to that, we'd love to have you yeah. back, whether it's virtually or even yeah. better to have you on campus. Certainly, the next time I'm in DC, I'll give you a call. Please do. We'll be happy okay. to host you. Sure. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you very much, Brad. I appreciate it. 